Well, let's, uh, let's read the reading for today, which is Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, filthy still be filthy, the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears says, come. And let everyone who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So, 56 sermons, and I have managed not to mention the name of Hal Lindsey or the late great planet Earth. 
For a whole generation of you, that doesn't mean anything, which is good. It means, it means that people of my generation have done their job and got it off the, uh, the must-have list of Christian books you must read. <clears throat> the great uh, uh, a young man who was uh, in his first church 50 years ago, next year actually, uh, in his evening services, uh, was influenced by Hal Lindsay in the titles of the sermons that he preached. Russia in prophecy, the common market or the, so, the, the European Union in prophecy, uh, America in prophecy. Uh, those were the kind of themes that, I, that he tried uh, in his first church. And uh, it wasn't until he started going through the book of Daniel, expounding it, that he realized that if he didn't have Hal Lindsey's book, he would never have gotten those things out of the Bible. You see, in the book of Revelation, we have discovered (laughs) that Hal Lindsey's presupposition was wrong. His presupposition was that you should read the Holy, that you should read the book of Revelation with the Bible in one hand, Revelation in one hand, and your newspaper in the other. That was, that was his philosophy. Obviously, for most people on planet Earth, through most of the last 2,000 years, they couldn't have done that. So even the people who read Revelation for the first time couldn't have done that. But this was his way into Revelation. Revelation is talking about things that are going on in the news. Now, what we've discovered as we've gone through Revelation is that there is no book in the entire Bible that concentrates and gathers together its material from the Old Testament, almost exhausting the Old Testament for its signs and symbols, its metaphors, its pictures, its names of things, In fact, what we've seen as we've gone through Revelation is the riches of the whole of Scripture have been ransacked and exhausted in helping us to see the splendor that is in Jesus Christ and the splendor of new Jerusalem, Zion. Zion is where we find solid joys and lasting treasure. And so we find, once again, as we go into chapter 22, In the very first paragraph, where are we pushed towards looking? The opening paragraph of this chapter points us backwards to the very beginning of the Bible itself and teaches us that the whole story of the Bible, going from Genesis to Revelation, is the story of paradise lost and paradise regained. In both Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, and in Genesis 1, there are rivers, there's a tree of life. You find in the opening chapters of Genesis that the fall of the first Adam brought death. In Revelation, you discover that the victory of the last Adam brought life. That's really the picture that's being painted As we open the chapter, the angel showed me the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
In Eden, in the beginning of the Bible, the rivers flowing out of Eden are linked to the tree of life in the center of the garden of Eden. Or if you turn over the page to the book of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel is describing New Jerusalem, he shows that there is a a miraculous river that has its origins beneath the altar in the temple and that flows out from beneath the altar and right down the middle of the temple, like the middle aisle here, and down the steps and down through the city streets of Jerusalem until it comes to the countryside and then it comes to the Dead Sea and wherever that river flows, there is life and growth and fertility. It turns drought and barrenness into fruitfulness and life. And Zechariah the prophet, he sees that in the age to come, this water flowing from New Jerusalem would flow perpetually. It would flow to the seas, going to the east and the west, making the whole earth fertile. This river was to spring to life when Jesus set his foot on the Mount of Olives to deal judgment and bring salvation. It's Jesus who brings living water to the thirsty. In other words, the river and the waters and the fruitfulness and the plenty are entirely spiritual. So when we read about the river here, we're not to think of a river that merely sustains nature and gives natural life. This river flows from the heart of God and brings eternal life and healing and fruitfulness and joy to the world. Both the Garden of Eden and the city in Ezekiel and here New Jerusalem are places where God and humans live together in harmony and fellowship and eternal life and joy. You know, that was the theme of many of the Psalms. For example, Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. You remember Jesus talking to that woman of Samaria where he taught us so many uh, deep truths. Uh, Tells her, uh, he had come to her, the conversation began when he asked her for something to drink and he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the water in the well, Everyone that drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Tomorrow they'll need to drink. And the next day. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So we have the river of water. We have the trees of life that spring up on either side of the river. In Eden, there's only one tree of life. Here, there are plural. There are plurality of of trees of life. And they're given for, he says, the healing of the nations. At this point in the book, world history has come to an end. Human history has ended. The wars and the violence that are associated with that history, the cruelty and the oppression the political power and corruption have come to an end. Now people from every tribe and nation inhabit Zion. They inhabit Zion because they've come to know God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent and they enjoy eternal 
life. You remember at one point in John chapter 7, Jesus talks to the crowd in Jerusalem about living water. He says, people that come to me get living water. And the comment is made by the Holy Spirit that this refers to the Spirit which they that believe in him should receive. The Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, we say when we say the, 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 the creed, the Nicene Creed. He gives life to, whether it's animal or human life, whether it's physical or spiritual life, whether it's temporal or eternal life, it's the Holy Spirit. He sustains you in your physical existence right at this moment. He will sustain us in eternal life forevermore. So, from eternal life, it's an introductory theme of the book. We're, to, we're led to see the quality of that life. What does he say? He says, there will no longer be anything that is accursed. What is accursed? Well, we read about that in chapter 21. There'll be no death, no sorrow, no crying, no trouble. And the text moves us from the end of all those cursed things to the cause of all blessedness. It says, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in this city. And I want you to follow the grammar that's used here, but the grammar teaches us how to speak the grammar of God. Here, there is a singular throne, not a throne for Jesus and a throne for God, or even a throne for us, a singular throne with a singular occupant, God and the Lamb. The Greek language, God and the Lamb are one thing. They're singular and there's a singular object of worship. His servants, that is, whose? Who is the his? His is God and the Lamb. His servants shall worship him. Who's that? God and the Lamb. The worshiping of God is the worshiping of Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. And the singular pronoun refers to the unity of the Godhead, the one God who sits on the one throne, occupies one testament, temple, and receives one worship. From whom? Well, the worship is described here. You, do you notice uh, this is verse 3? His servants will worship him. That word worship refers to priestly service as we engage in priestly acts. Now, now, in First Peter and here in Revelation, we are reminded that one of God's gifts to his people is that he not only adopts them as his children so that we are together spiritual siblings, but he makes his children priests to God. Not only priests, but high priests to God. Austin Farrer was uh, one of the great... 20th century theologians, and uh, he says this about the fact that you and I have been made priests to God. We have been made infinitely above even Aaron, who was the first high priest in the Old Testament, infinitely above him. Those priests, Aaron and his fellow priests, were to wear God's name in their foreheads, and they were the ones who were to pronounce the blessing on the children of Israel, Yahweh bless you, 
and keep you. Yahweh shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his face upon you and give you peace. That was the the ironic blessing. But it was a foreshadowing of the day when his name will be placed not only on a priestly class, but on all the people of God, all now priests to God, and all who will receive God's introduction of himself. They'll behold the face of God and so on. So here we are, every one of us in this room, are priests to God, men and women, boys and girls, to offer up worship to God. That's our create. We're created to worship God. So the incarnation of the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has been, enabled us to see the essence of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, in Christ, the invisible God makes himself visible in Jesus. This is how he lifts up his face upon us. That's how we see the face of God. And not only that, but what we read is this, they will have no need of light nor sun from the Lord God will be their light, and they, that is everybody, will reign forever and ever. You see, what have we been told earlier in this book, uh, which we're also told by Peter in his epistles, we are made kings and priests to God. All of us, kings and priests to God. The light of the living God shines upon them to give them forever life, life forever. And in the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords, we are given privileges beyond our wildest dreams. They reign We reign in life in the presence of God. And we don't reign over one another. We don't reign over one another. Why? Because all who are not lost, that is eternally lost, are fellow kings. You see, this kind of blows up one of those uh, insidious little lies that circulate around Christian circles in various books that you read, uh, the, the idea uh, for which that they, they believe gives them a basis for this little lie is they believe that eternally Jesus the Son is subordinate to God the Father. Well, quite apart from the fact that they're breaking the Godhead there and they're basically saying that the Godhead comprises of three different people uh, and therefore that there are three different wills in the Godhead, all of that stuff that would actually make it tritheism, not, not Trinitarianism. Apart from that total unorthodoxy, they utilize that to say that between men and women, husbands and wives, there is an eternal subordination of women, wives, the women to men and wives to their husbands. Now, this has never been known in the history of the church. I want to say this. This, is, this lie has never been known uh, in the history of the church. And they've even mangled the Godhead in order to try and support their, th- their theory. But when you read what the Bible says, every believer, in fact, 
The whole idea of men and women is going to disappear because we're going to be like the angels in glory. There'll be no marriage and giving in marriage. In glory, we're like the angels who are not engendered. And we're going to be kings and priests, not over each other, but over the universe that God has made in the new heaven and the new earth. So away with that nonsense. Let's stick to the Bible. They're going to reign forever and ever. And so with verse 6, the visions of Revelation have ended and climaxed in New Jerusalem. We're going to hear the three players in the drama for the last time. For the last time, we're going to hear from the angel. This angel has been our guide from the very beginning in showing us these heavenly things and interpreting them to us as we've made our journey through the book. It's this angel now who says, these words are trustworthy and true. That is everything in this book we call revelation. The words are trustworthy and true. And they're trustworthy and true because they're a message from Almighty God through this angel. The message originates with the Lord, the Eternal Father, the God of all the spirits. He's the one who gives prophetic inspiration. This work is a work of prophecy, not only because it talks about the future, but because it tells you about the present. It it has explained to us in a way that we needed to hear and that the church needs to hear in every generation, by the way, about the conflict between the monster and the Lamb, (coughs) between Babylon the whore and Jerusalem the bride. (coughs) Excuse me. And it has summoned us to that one victory. (coughs) I'm going to have to... (coughs) This is a talisker. It's not really. It would help right at this moment to settle the old throat. I don't know what time it is because I just got in from Edinburgh yesterday. Uh, What time my body clock is, I mean. So what he's done is, if we didn't have the book of Revelation and we saw the things that happened in our lifetime, And we saw the ways the church behaves and the church breaks down and the church deceives and the church implodes. And we see the things that have been going on in the nations like what Russia is doing to Ukraine. What people in power do to those who are not in power as they're discovering in Britain in their political life right now. Where where children are and spouses even are are subjected to bullying or abuse. I mean, if we saw all of that stuff, we would think, what is going on? Is Christianity doesn't have any effect at all. The book of Revelation is given to us to expect things to go wrong, but to see that God is on the throne through them all and that in the end, Jesus wins. In the end, Jesus wins. Hold on to the end. Don't give up. So the angel reminds us of that. What John is doing in the book of Revelation, somebody said to me, there's not a lot of gospel in Revelation. Bananas. Uh, 
the whole counsel of the whole counsel of God. The gospel's this much in the whole counsel of God. Paul says, preach the whole counsel of God. That's what Revelation preaches. Well, the angel, as he's done before, becomes an instrument that Jesus uses to speak to them. So the angel is speaking Jesus' words. I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This book is a message to the churches. We read that in our reading. And Jesus is speaking to the churches. And uh, we're reminded that Jesus has his eye on the church throughout all of history. That was introduced in the first few chapters, that, that he's there. Jesus takes a whole big interest in what we do as a church more than we want him to sometimes. He knows what churches are up to. He knows how they sometimes want to imitate the spirit of the age and become more and more and more like the, the churches round about. I was hearing the church only this week. Uh, by church, I mean an entire denomination that had voted that, uh, that they would just adopt the whole LGBTQ thing. That they would, that they would just accept that. But we want to be faithful to Jesus. We want to be faithful to Jesus and deny Jesus at the same time. But Jesus knows about that, these things. Christ comes through the churches investigating, correcting, and even removing them, removing them altogether. And sometimes it says, the book has said, Jesus says, I'll come to you. You don't want that. Sometimes we don't want Jesus to come to the church. We, we would think if Jesus comes to the church, there'll be a revival, and there may be, but sometimes it's to judge. But meanwhile, the angel says there's a particular blessing, a particular blessing to those who read and mark and learn these words. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Did you know that there is a special blessing to us for studying Revelation? So the angel for the last time. For the last time we hear from John. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. He says, if the spell is broken, suddenly we're we're brought back to that windswept island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea and the apostles in exile. And uh, we're reminded that this book is about is of considerable and immediate concern to the church in every age and place, John's time and our time. We see the effect on the apostle is overwhelming. Uh, When the last vision is finished, the apostle forgets the warning that he'd got from an angel before about this in chapter 19. And because an angel is very scary and very wonderful, he prostrates himself before the angel. And the angel tells him that's a big mistake. That's a seriously big mistake. And he repeats the warning he'd given before. He said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and of your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of the book. That's you and me. We're the ones who keep the words of this book. And it's remarkable to me that these creatures, these angels, who are in a level of existence higher than ours at the moment— I mean, as creatures, there's God, angels, humans. 
by the resurrection of Jesus and in our glorification, we will be raised above the angels. But in the moment we're below the angels, the angels are spectacular creatures, and yet here they identify themselves as fellow servants. Hebrews calls them ministering spirits to serve the heirs of salvation. What does the angel have to say to John? Worship God. Worship God. And, and this, is, this little scenario is in the Bible here to tell us as a reminder of John's own fallibility and failure, which we share with him. The angel uses John's error to warn the churches and to warn us of how easy it is to exchange the worship of God for a lesser being. Now, an illustration. Protestants worry that the Roman church, although it distinguishes the honor that should be paid to Mary and the saints, it has a word that distinguishes that from the word they use for the worship of God. They distinguish But we Protestants worry that that distinguishing in practice doesn't seem to help people in the way they think of Mary and the saints, and that there may be some worship going on where it shouldn't be going on in their church. But we we can't sit back and feel self-congratulatory here, because for Protestants, we are often blind to our obsequious tendency to make much of men, of the elite, of the celebrities, of the big-name pastors, of the people who have their radio shows, television shows, and write all the books, and we tend to give them more credit than they deserve. We, we, tend, to, we tend to listen to their voice. Maybe you come to church and you listen to your own pastor, and you go and you, you, you listen to these guys who are not your pastor, that you don't know. The, the great thing about being a member of a church is you know your pastor, you know his faults and failings, you know his weaknesses, and all the rest of it. That's transparent to you. They're not. They're just television kind of images. And the tragedy is that sometimes in our evangelical churches, we worship those folks. We listen to those folk. And we don't listen to God. John's taught that lesson. Well, lastly, we're going to listen to Jesus. We're going to listen to Jesus. We were told right at the very beginning of this book that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Revelation points to a picture of a church that's caught in between the, what is already happening and what's not yet happened. Right now, churches are compromised, cold, disobedient, complacent, worldly, unfaithful. That's what the first two chapters, chapters two and three of Revelation, are, are about. That's the way churches are. Only one of them is commended. Jesus says to them, you've abandoned your first love. Repent. If you don't, I'll remove your candlestick. Be faithful to death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Repent, and I will come and 
If you don't repent, I will come and make war against you. Jesus says that to churches. Hold fast till you what you have until I come, Jesus says. Remember what you received and heard. Keep hold of it. Hold fast to what you have. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. All of those are calls to be faithful. Be faithful, church. We're to be faithful jointly and severally. In other words, we're to be faithful all together as a congregation and faithful as individual parts of that congregation. He was an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're not to listen to false prophets. We're not to follow false leaders. We're to hear him. We're to follow the Lamb wherever he goes even if it leads to us being left dead on the streets. And for the faithful, the one who conquers, he will, give to grant, he will grant to eat of the tree of life. They will not be hurt by the second death. She will be given a new name, the morning star. They'll be clothed in white garments. They'll be made a pillar in the temple of my God, and they will sit with me on my throne. And above all, they will see his face. John 22 and verse 6 finds the angel guide standing alone, and the guide tells us what revelation consists of, those trustworthy words. Here, however, we hear Jesus himself at the end of it. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Whose voice is this? Look at verse 12. See, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Look at verse 16. I, Jesus. In describing himself this way, he's taking us back to chapter 1 where he appears to John and he calls himself the first and the last. He's a risen one. He was dead. He is alive. Now he's reigning And he's saying to his church that he is coming soon. He's inviting his church to pray these prayers. Come, Lord Jesus. The book asks at the very end that the grace of the Lord Jesus should be with all the saints, even now. Moreover, Jesus describes himself as the root and descendant of David. In other words, the one to whom all the river of prophecies have found their fulfillment. And he has ransomed people for God from every nation under heaven. And he is the bright morning star. That is, the risen Jesus has started a new day. This is a new day. This is a new creation. And the angel commands John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Don't keep them quiet. Don't hide them away. Don't say, we'll deal with that some other day. The words of this prophecy have to be preached. They have to be heard. They're not to be sealed. This word of prophecy is for churches throughout this age. True prophecy leads people to serve the true God. False prophecy draws people away from God. And how do we keep the words of this book? Not by idle speculation, but by washing our robes through faith in Christ and pursuing righteousness in Him. 
So wherever we find ourselves, the words of Jesus are to be taken with utter seriousness. Verse 7, behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. Verse 20, surely I am coming soon. The rise and fall of earthly powers, the threats and encouragements in equal measure that life throws at us. The talk of judgment as well as salvation can unsettle the faint-hearted. I, I, I empathize with those of you who have been unsettled by parts of Revelation. Life unsettles us. The brutality, the, bre- the briefness of life unsettles us. That has often led people to ignore the book or to ignore the, or only to go to the less intimidating parts of the book. But that misses the purpose. Its purpose is to disturb us when we're comfortable and to comfort us when we're disturbed. So this book engages us and warns us when churches become preoccupied with wealth or with fitting into the culture, when we relegate a book like this to the margins of our thinking, when Christians are as callous as, uh, as the culture is towards wealth and, or violence or whatever it might be. This word comes to warn, to purify, to win the church back for Christ. I heard this week that some of the things in this book of Revelation are coming to reality. In Australia, in the province or the state of Victoria, there is a law on the books which brings statutory sentences upon you, and that that, uh, law bans the reading of or the exposition of Romans chapter 1, because it's labeled hate speech, hate speech. Now, if that law ever were to come into place here, what would we do? What would we do? We'd break the law. We'd break the law. And we'd go to prison. And we'd accept whatever penalty was imposed on us. We'd be faithful to Jesus. We'd be faithful to Jesus. Well, the church is not indifferent to the world. I want you to look at verse 17. There's a job for us to keep on doing here. The church is still on mission and on message. The spirit of the bride say, come. The spirit and the bride. That is the Holy Spirit with the church there in the business of saying to men and women in the world, come, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to him. Let everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, let everybody who hears it say to people, come. You need to come to Jesus. You need to come to him. Let everyone who is thirsty, maybe that's you this morning, spiritually thirsty, parched. You've tried all the things the world has to offer and they have just, they've just been like sand going through your fingers. They're empty. You have a thirst for Significance for meaning, for purpose. 
Well, there's a sense of which that is precisely, that is precisely where the good news of the gospel comes in. Jesus says to you, come, come to me. And I'll relieve your thirst. He said that to that Samaritan woman. He said to the Samaritan woman, there are areas of your life where you are, you're empty, you're needing, you're needing refreshed by God. Here's the thing. Let anyone who wishes, who desires, if you want it, if you want it, here's the promise. You may take the water of life, that is, the water of eternal life. You may take it, and you may take it free, gratis, and for nothing, without price. There you have it. That's the good news. Eternal life is for you. Take it. Receive it. And in that new heavens and new earth with sin and mortality removed by the grace of God, our faces will turn towards him rather than turn away from him. And as uh, my good friend St. Augustine puts it, God's people will rest and see See and love, love and praise. This is what shall be in the end without end. Let's pray. Our heart cries to you, O Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Take the power and reign. Bring an end to all of this mess of human struggle and strife. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.